Okay, if you can turn to John chapter 7. This is our final Sunday in John 7. And obviously, next we move to John 8. But, all right. I'm actually going to read um, last week's passage as well, just to kind of set up some of what was uh, going to happen here in this last section. So, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have you, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then each went to his own home. Let's pray. Father, as we hear the claims of Jesus this morning, we ask that your Spirit would be at work in us, that we might see the truth and see it clearly, and more than see it, we might believe the truth and believe it fully. Father, this only comes from you, and so we ask that you would grant us this, that even those of us who believe in Christ would see him more fully, more clearly, as we look at your word this morning. Prepare us as we engage those or, you know, who don't know Christ, that we might better understand the obstacles that exist within their own hearts, that we might address them in hopes that they too might have their eyes opened, that you might shine your light into their hearts that they might see Jesus and believe. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Yesterday I purposely watched <clears throat> the 1950s version of 12 Angry Men. Because as I looked at this passage, that's what came to my mind, the movie 12 Angry Men. For those of you who aren't familiar with this classic that stars uh, Peter Fonda, not Peter Fonda, 
Henry Fonda. He was a good actor. Peter, not so much. Uh, Jack Klugman, back before he was Oscar the Grouch. Not the Grouch, but you know. A number of uh, good actors in this old film. And most of it takes place in the jury room. There is a sequence at the very beginning of a couple of minutes that takes place in the courtroom. And then there's this one very short scene afterwards where Henry Fonda's character and another character shake hands and bid each other farewell. So all of this takes place within this one little room. And what it is is that there is a man on trial for his life. He's 18 years old, he's Hispanic, and he's accused of killing his father with a knife. As the jurors file into the room, there are many of them who think that this is going to be quick, this is going to be easy, because one of them, of course, has tickets to go to the ball game that night. Okay, so he wants it done and done now. And so they decide to start off with a vote. This has to be unanimous, of course. And 11 of them say, guilty. And there's one who says, not guilty. And so the rest of the movie is about him trying to help them examine the evidence that they heard to see if it actually does show that he is as guilty as these people thought he was. We see here in John, people who have jumped to conclusions, who are doing exactly what Jesus warned people not to do earlier in this passage about making a superficial judgment instead of one that is rooted and grounded in truth. The big idea that you have is not the same as the big idea I have. Sometimes things happen between Thursday and Sunday morning. Okay? The Holy Spirit does not work on my timetable, which is Thursday around 2 o'clock. It all has to be done, okay? Um, and actually, your points are going to be changed, too. <laughs> it's been inverted, so just kind of just roll with it, all right? Just don't worry about that if that's going to confuse you. Just listen and see what God does. The big idea this morning is the despised Galilean invites us into his shame to share in his glory. So my first thing that I want to say, actually from the end of this text, is to humble yourself to receive the despised Galilean. Now, of course, we remember from our quote at the beginning of the worship service from A.A. Hodge in his book, The Atonement, that this is part of the truth not the whole truth. He's not just the despised Galilean, but he, that is part of the truth we must embrace, not reject. So I'm saying that in light of that. Got that? Okay. Now we see that there are two groups in the second part of this passage who have similar reactions to Jesus. They actually despise and reject him. I'm going to start with those people first. Okay. The first group, part of the crowd, says, is the Christ... To come from Galilee. And so there's some who believe he's, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the promised one who is to come. And then there's this other group that says, he can't be that. He's from Galilee. We know from Scripture that he's, from the, he's a son of David, and therefore he comes from Bethlehem, the place where David lives. And so there's a sense in which they understand the teaching of the Scriptures. Because indeed, Isaiah teaches that he is the son of David, the root and the branch of David. Micah, chapter 5, not you. 
teaches that, of course, he comes from Bethlehem, from the clan of Apathrath. Too little, it says, to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And so they've got some biblical data correct in their brains. But here's the problem. In their pride, they think they know all the truth there is to know about Jesus. But in fact, though he, as an adult, was from Galilee, and he was raised in Galilee, and he probably had the Galilean accent that they all thought was very backwards, you know. They didn't like the Galileans a whole lot. Sort of like how some people think of Southerners. Are there any Southerners here? I, I don't despise you, okay? But some people, when they hear a Southerner speak, they think, oh, that person can't be very bright because they got that drawl, you know? It's nothing to do with that. But they judged him on the basis of these things, not realizing, of course, where he was really born, which is actually Bethlehem. But we'll get back to that in a little bit, okay? But it's pride. Pride that thinks we have we, we, we know for certain we have all of the data we need to make the right decision, just like those 11 men in that juror room who thought they had everything they needed to know to make the judgment of guilty and forfeit this man's life. Because indeed, life was on the line for that Hispanic young man. They understood the Scriptures, but they did not properly apply it to their circumstances. There's this one moment in the film where they're, they're looking at re-examining the evidence and they're not putting the pieces together yet. Because on the one hand, they have the testimony of an older man who lived underneath where the murder was, who claims he heard them shouting at each other, one say, the boy saying, I'm going to kill you, and then hearing the body drop. That sounds pretty compelling now, doesn't it? There was another person who testified and she says that when, her testimony is that she couldn't sleep and she, she woke up and she was watching. The train comes by, that is the elevated subway train, comes by and through the windows of the last two cars of the train, she sees the murder take place. What they hadn't done is put those two things together. Subway trains are pretty loud, aren't they? How could he hear? if it was taking place when a subway train was going by. We have a problem. These guys are just like that. They think they have the data, but they haven't put it all together. They haven't made the necessary connections. They haven't sought additional truth to make sense of it all. There they are. The Pharisees are also like these people. They think they have figured it out, and they look down upon the crowd. There is this phrase that they had, the people of the land, and you see it in a lot of rabbinical writings, and they say about these people that this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And so they're taking from Deuteronomy 27, which says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. In other words, you confirm the word of the law by living the word of the law. And all the people, it says in Deuteronomy 27, shall say amen. So what the rabbis would say is the average person 
you know, the hoi polloi, those people out there, you know, out in the sticks of, of Israel, they don't know the law. We can see that because they don't obey the law. And on the basis of these things, they are, of course, accursed. God will bring his judgment and wrath upon them. This was the mindset, not just of the general rabbi that we, we see in, uh, in history, but it was the, uh, this was the attitude of the chief priests and the Pharisees in that meeting that we have a record of here. They looked down upon these despised, these people they despised. They had prejudices that were at work because of their arrogance. I'm reminded of a different movie for a moment, Princess Bride, for those of you who know, who remember. There's this one scene where the supposedly evil dread pirate Scott appears and, huh? Roberts. Right. See? Pride. I watched the clip and I still got it wrong. All right. Pirate Roberts meets up with Vizzini, who has the princess bride, whom he has kidnapped. And the dread pirate Roberts (laughs) has already dispatched two of his colleagues to get to this point. And Vicini has the knife at her throat, and he's, I'll kill her, thinking, of course, and rightly so, that he has come to rescue her. The pirate says, it would seem that we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. Hmm. You're that smart? Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. Vizzini was puffed up, arrogant, full of himself, so much that he thought of three of the greatest philosophers who walked the face of the earth as morons. And so that would become his undoing. It would be him who would lose the match of wits. It would be him who died that day. Now, these people, these Pharisees, also disparage the temple police. The temple police come in. They don't have Jesus. So they go, where in the world is he? We sent you to arrest him. How come you haven't brought him back here in chains? We'll get to their answer later. But they attack them. They disparage them as deceived and not following their lead. They're saying, have any of us believed in this man? Hello, we're smarter than you. If we don't believe in him, why should you is the implication that is going on at that moment. They thought that they were the rulers and judges. And they were supposed to be this way, of course. They recognize the seriousness of the matter, just as most of the men in that courtroom recognize the seriousness of the matter. We saw a reflection of this in Deuteronomy 15 when it was read, um, in that if someone came, if you were paying attention, if, if someone came and was advocating false gods, other gods, they were to be put to death. 
And so what Jesus here is, if he is advocating something that is outside the bounds of the Old Testament, he was to be put to death. Okay, this is a serious matter that's going on. They should have investigated this thing. Okay? So, that's when Nicodemus speaks up. You see, there was one of them who believed just a little bit. Nicodemus, who earlier in chapter 3 had come by night, who recognized that Jesus was taught of God, but was struggling with some of what Jesus said. There was one who came. There is one who spoke. There is one here who opposed, just as Juror 8 stood up to the other jurors in the movie. Later on in the movie, one of, Juror 9 says to him, or says about him, it's not easy to stand against the ridicule of others. Juror 11 later on speaks to another, don't you have the guts to do what's right? Yeah, I wrote all this stuff down. Nicodemus has the guts to do part of what's right, and he's standing up and inviting the potential ridicule of the Pharisees. I mean, he just saw. They've made fun of the people of the land. They've just disparaged the guards, and now he knows what's going to come to him. But he stands up anyway. Okay? So he believes, but secondly, he points out that they who espoused the law, who were so certain that the other people didn't obey the law, keep that in mind, weren't following it either. John, again, this whole passage is filled with irony. Okay? The irony that those who are so adamant about obeying the law in this matter are not obeying the law. Because they want to put a man to death, essentially, without the testimony of two or three witnesses. They're, they're verbally condemning him. They've judged him as being outside the bounds of orthodoxy without sitting down and talking with him. And Nicodemus is the man who raises this point. And you know what's coming. Nicodemus reminds them in a, in a way that had they interviewed Jesus, they could ask things like where he was born. It seems like a simple thing. Do any of you know where I was born? What? Yeah, that's pretty vague, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Okay. But some of you just know I moved here from Florida. For all you know, I could have grown up in Florida. No, I didn't grow up in Florida. Okay. They had to ask. Because if they would remember their history, their very own history, they would remember there was such a thing as the census those 30-some years ago. And people had to move, be displaced for a period of time during the census. And so it was very possible that because of just immigration and everything else, that Jesus was not from Nazareth, Jesus was not from Galilee, but Jesus is from a different tribe. It's very possible. But they never stopped to ask the question. And that's really sort of the information, the idea that John has here. 
He's not from Galilee. But what's interesting, what's fascinating, if you stop and think about John's gospel, he never talks about where Jesus was born. Not once. Which means, I would think, that he is understanding that most of them are familiar with the account of either Matthew or Luke, most likely Luke. Okay? Which tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay? So he's assuming that they, that his audience has some knowledge of where Jesus was born. It would know that all of these people who say he's a Galilean, he's a Galilean, he's a Galilean, would know he wasn't born in Galilee. He's of the tribe of David. He's assuming this. Their arrogant anger then turns to Nicodemus as if he too is a hick from Galilee. Yes, Galilee, that backwoods place. If it was today, you'd almost think they'd hear banjos going. <laughs> people, people wearing overalls and having really bad teeth and not really able to speak good, proper English. Backwards. Looking down on them. Those people from Galilee. At one point in 12 Angry Men, Juror 8, who is played by Henry Fonda, not Peter Fonda, says, wherever you run into it, prejudice obscures the truth. And that was part of what was happening within that juror room, the reality of prejudice, because that was a Hispanic person. That was someone who grew up in the slums. For instance, there's conflict about the, the woman who made her testimony, and the guy says, why do you believe her? She's one of them, too. The other person had already displayed their disdain for Hispanic people, so he used that against him. Everyone knows slums are breeding grounds for criminals. And that's when Jack Klugman's character says, I grew up in a slum. Juror 7 is angry about Juror 11, and he says, I'm telling you, they are all alike. They come over here running for their life and then try to tell us how to do things. Juror 11 was an Italian-American. Those people. Juror 10 later says in an angry rant, you know how these people lie. They don't even know what the truth is. This is what they are by nature, violent. This kid is a liar. I know all about them. None of them is good. And so their prejudice was judging, was blinding them to the truth. And arrogance usually goes hand in hand with prejudice. And this is what was happening in that room with all the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests. Their disdain and prejudice against Galileans, people from Galilee, was affecting their judgment. And so they say, are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? 
Then they make an erroneous statement. No prophet comes from Galilee. Now, if they weren't so angry at Nicodemus, they might remember that most likely Jonah and Nahum came from the area of Galilee. Now, there might be a way to get them off the hook. It might be to say that uh, we have a textual variant here and that should read the prophet. Everyone knows that the prophet does not come from Galilee, but there's not a whole lot of hope for that one, folks. So don't hold out any hope for these guys in that respect. But it's, it's arrogance that is at work here. It's arrogance that keeps them from receiving him. They think they, think they know it all, or they're too, they're too good to need him in a lot of ways. But it's not just that. We'll get back to the arrogance and pride in just a moment. But there's also a fear that goes on in some people's hearts. A fear, okay, that keeps them embracing, from embracing the despised Galilean precisely because they don't want to share in his shame. They know how he's looked at from the perspective of the intellectual elites of our culture. They know how he is viewed by many politicians and people in power. And so they're afraid of being lumped in with the despised ones. I mean, who, who wants to have everybody look down at them, down their nose at them? Who wants to be among those who are despised? Who, for those of you who are adults, who wants to be the kid on the bus who got picked on? Who wants to be the kid who was always chosen last for a sport? Who wants to be the little girl in the corner who likes to read and everyone thinks she's funny because she doesn't participate in their games? Who wants to be the outcast, the outsider? And what Jesus is inviting us into is to join him in being an outcast. And there are a lot of people who are afraid of that. They may have been that way before. They don't want to, they, they think they've gone past that. They've, they've survived it. They don't want to go back. They don't want a part of his shame. Back to the arrogance. First Peter chapter five. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's one of my favorite passages. You want to know why? Because I'm an arrogant person. And I need to remember this verse. God opposes the proud precisely because the, the proud also oppose him. They resist him. We will get to that more of that in a little bit. They resist him and his grace. And so God opposes the proud and their hearts are hardened just like Pharaoh's heart. But the humble, the humble, they know they don't know it all, and they receive the truth as it is revealed to them. The humble also see the price of their arrogance in the cross of Christ. They recognize that such arrogance deserves, in the face of God, deserves death. We also read 1 Corinthians 1 this morning. What did Paul say about them? 
Oh, you are the smartest people ever. You are the most noble people ever. You guys are... No. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were somebody. Most of you were nobodies. But God took the shameful things of this world that he might destroy the proud things of this world. Humility seeks the help of the Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures, to understand what they say, that they might receive what the Scriptures offer and promises. And so Jesus entered shame as a despised Galilean, and he invites you to join him there in that shame. Second point. Yeah, we only got two today. Listen to the despised Messiah who is the prophet. The passage we did last week, and I, I, I read from at the very beginning of this text, is what uh, my brother-in-law Dan Hrick would say, Jesus drops the gospel bomb. Okay? And so, you know, all kinds of things happen, and these people are divided as to what this all means. There's division or schism. If we transliterate that, word, that Greek word, we get schism. It's produced by accepting only part of the truth for the whole truth. And so you have one group that says, he is the prophet which we've been waiting for. He is the prophet in Deuteronomy who is like unto Moses, to uh, quote the King James Version. Okay? Now, it makes sense for them to think that he might be the prophet. After all, they might remember or might have heard about the feeding of the 4,000. And then Jesus subsequently talking about himself being the bread from heaven. Sort of like Moses and the manna, right? They might think from what Jesus just said, you know, we read about him pouring out the Spirit upon people, the streams of living water here, and the, during the, you know, to mimicking the, the, the water ceremony in the, 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 the tabernacle feast. Water from a rock. The water in the wilderness. He's doing the stuff that Moses did. He's a prophet like Moses. That would be a completely understandable thing, and in fact, it's right. He is the prophet. But that's not all he is. There were others who believed that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Now, many Jews thought that there was the prophet and there was the Messiah. They were not the same person. Okay, so these people believe that Jesus is someone else as opposed to uniting these things in his one person. Okay? They believe that he is the son of David. They believed, they're not sure where he came from, but we see Romans 1, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, which was why he was born in Bethlehem during the census. Hebrews 1, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, meaning that his son was a prophet as well as Messiah. The reality here is that both of them have authority, one as the prophet and the other as the Davidic king, to speak and act on God's behalf. And so we come to the officers 
The officers didn't arrest Jesus because as they testify to the chief priests and the Pharisees, no one ever spoke like this man. We're not exactly sure what that means. No one had as much charisma as him. But most likely, as I said before, a few weeks ago, it most likely had to do with authority. Like the scribes, he was not reciting source after source after source, but he was proclaiming the truth as though he had authority in and of himself. And so these guys are mesmerized by the preaching of Jesus and believe that they cannot arrest him. Now, everyone is mesmerized, but it doesn't mean they obeyed. There's this one story of Benjamin Franklin, he of the kite and the key. During the Great Awakening, he went to see George Whitfield preach. And as he listened to Whitfield, he was amazed and mesmerized and was one of those who believed that Whitfield was one of the most gifted speakers the world had ever known. But he didn't believe what Whitfield said. He didn't respond in faith to the Christ that Whitfield preached. These people are essentially saying, ah, he's the prophet, he's the Messiah, but they aren't necessarily obeying him, are they? In John's Gospel, we see that as the Word of God made flesh, in in chapter 1, He is the one who interprets the Father, in also chapter 1. So Jesus is surely the prophet, and about Him, in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, while He was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And Deuteronomy, when it talks about the prophet, it says, listen to him. Why? Because he's speaking what I commanded him to speak. God sends him that we might listen to him. Now, there's two kinds of listening. Those of you who have children have probably heard this from their children. You don't listen to me. Now, that can be taken in one of two ways. All right? There is a kind of listening that a, that a parent should do with respect to their child, which is similar to prayer. When the father listens to our prayers, he listens, he understands, and he acts. Doesn't necessarily obey. Okay? He takes in the information, and out of his love and his wisdom, the, the father decides what he should do, but that may not line up with what the child wants. You understand? That's one kind of listening. And that's the kind of listening a parent should do with their child. Then there's the kind of listening that the child should do with the parent. Or anyone who's under authority. Okay? So if you have a boss and your boss tells you what to do, do you take that under advisement? 
I'll think about that. It's not going to go over well in the meeting. I I trust you. We are to be like the child or the one under authority, and when Jesus speaks, we are to go, yes. What you say is right, and that's what I should do. Help me to do it, because I know my own weakness. Okay? There's two ways to listen. It's the second one that is supposed to go on here. We're not just supposed to listen, but we're supposed to do what he says. And what he said in that particular passage was, come, drink, believe, receive. The summons to faith. And they weren't, apparently, from what we can tell, coming, drinking, believing, receiving. It was an intellectual exercise alone for them. It's important for us to remember it's not. Romans 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, we'll hang on for a second. James 1 says something very similar. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. All of us have failed to do the law. But if you're a Christian, you believe in the one who has kept the law, Jesus Christ himself. He is the only one who has perfectly kept the law. He is the only one who offers to give us his obedience as if it was our very own obedience. Okay, So I'm not teaching you justification by your own works. Okay, But in terms of sanctification, there should be a desire within us to obey. Because we love Him, because we trust Him. And where that is absent, serious questions must be asked about the reality of this faith that you have. Okay? We see a similar problem back in the life of Israel. Remember, I'm in Exodus right now. Actually, I just finished Exodus this week. But we see here that, we see in Exodus that God honored Moses in numerous ways. You know, he's the one who saw the burning bush. He's the one who had the staff that turned into the snake. He's the one who, you know, made the Nile turn into blood. He's the one, boom, boom, everything. Okay? God honors Moses. And he spoke to Israel through him. In fact, they begged him to because they didn't want to hear the voice of God because they were so afraid of him. Let you speak, Moses. We don't want to hear from God. You listen to God and then you tell us and we'll do everything. That's what they kept saying. That's not what they did. Moses disappears for 40 days. Up on the top. They know where he is. He's on the top of the mountain. He's meeting with God. And not even 40 days pass by. And they're deciding, we don't know where this Moses dude went. So uh, Aaron, make a God for us. Go ahead. Break the second commandment that they just received and said that they would obey. And consistently, Moses has to deal with the grumbling and the whining and the complaining and every the rebellion that, that emerges. They didn't believe Moses, and here we go. They're not believing the one greater than Moses. They're still resisting. Why? Arrogance, 
wants autonomy. We want the, to be able to do what we want, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We resist the authority of God in our arrogance. And Jesus says, what? Come unto me, ye who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. It's still a yoke. It still calls for submission. It still means he's in control, not you. And so for a lot of people, that's the issue. They want autonomy. They don't want to have to bow down to someone who tells them what to do. One of the things in in the counseling classes I did is we talk about resistance. Okay? And, And these are the resistances that we find in evangelism. Arrogance, autonomy, fear, and now there's there's... There's how I usually handled resistance in the counseling room. I tried to, like, break through the door. Because I'm a moron, <laughs> right? I'm with Aristotle and Socrates, okay? Um, <clears throat> that's not how, in counseling situations, you deal with the resistance. You let it be known that it exists. I sense that you're fearful. I sense that you're arrogant and, therefore, I sense that you really, your bottom line issue is you want to be in charge. And you know that Jesus won't let you be. Now, what they deal with it is up to them, but you've brought the real issue, the root issue, to the table. Okay, so when you're doing evangelism, be aware of that. What's the resistance? What's going on? Now, let me just kind of offer them a a picture into what's going on and let them decide what they're going to do with that. So, Jesus would freely offer himself to pay the penalty for our arrogant quest for autonomy. He did that. And so Jesus invites us to join him in his shame, but doesn't end there. That we might share in his future glory. Philippians 2 you got to keep that one in mind. He became, he humbled himself. He became uh, obedient unto death. He was like a slave. Then he was exalted and given the name that is above every name. That at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he invites us into this, the humility aspect, the, the temporary humili- humility and, and everything that he experienced, his shame. If we embrace the, crown, the cross, we will also receive the crown. To kind of get you back in the Romans 8. We will partake of his glory and his honor because we are united to him. And so the same, the same way that we partook of his shame, we will partake of his glory and his honor. So don't worry, the shame only lasts a little while. And it's not in his eyes. It's in the eyes of those who hate him. So Jesus confounds us when he who had such glory with the Father became a man, and not just a man, but a man of a despised race, not just that, but a man from a seemingly despised place, Galilee, and one who had questionable origins, who was his father? He willingly chose to embrace the shame in order to deliver us from our guilt 
and our shame. We only partake of that deliverance if we join him in his temporary shame. While we receive the scorn of the world for a time, we will dwell with him in glory and honor forever while they will drink the cup of judgment forever. Let's pray. I know I've gone too long today. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. Sometimes it takes a while for me to spit out these things that need to be said. Father, work them in our hearts that we might really reckon with the Jesus that we follow. That while we know he is glorious as it pertains to his humanity during his earthly ministry, he was despised. There was nothing that drew others to him. Save your spirit. So help us to be willing to stand with him in the midst of the the way in which the world despises him, knowing that we have a greater promise of standing with him in eternal glory because of his grace purchased at Calvary. Thank you for such a great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.